All of us who lead organizations are actually in the business of building movements, bringing people together to create a collective power that can affect change. In 1997, I was hired to lead an LGBT organization called GLAAD, but I think I understood that I had joined a movement, that I was a leader in this movement, and that that these things are kind of like relay races. You grab the baton from those who came before you and you hold on tight until it's time for you to pass it on. I grabbed the baton from those who came before me and ran like hell. I like to think I made a difference. And in so doing, I stood on the shoulders of others who carried the baton long before I decided to rejoin the race. My guest today is one of those people. She ran the LGBT relay race before I did. I knew her by reputation only. As a leader of an LGBT organization in the 1990s, she learned about the opportunities and challenges of movement building and then broadened her work to the progressive nonprofit sector as a whole. In this, we are kindred spirits. I took what I learned and became deeply passionate about building leadership capacity in the nonprofit sector, kind of a champion for leadership professional development, if you will. My guest, she turned her attention to what it takes to build a movement. What has to happen inside an organization, aligning their social justice values with how they operate? What has to happen for an organization to reflect the community it serves, offering those communities voice and power? What tools and resources would be the most valuable? What kinds of studies could be done to give visibility and credence to the challenges faced by the sector that, um, by the sector that might actually have the potential to thwart social change? Her organization may be West Mest most well-known for confronting the racial leadership gap in the nonprofit sector with its study Race to Lead in 2016. But her work, in, her work and the work of her organization travels in a variety of directions, all in the service of strengthening organizations to build strong movements for social change. On my podcast, I am determined to give voice to passionate people who are strengthening organizations and have their pulse on what it takes to secure real and lasting change. Today, I feel quite fortunate to have landed on one such change agent. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Francis Conroyder co-directs the Building Movement Project, which works to strengthen United States nonprofits as sites of civic engagement and social change. She's the co-author of two books, From the Ground Up, Grassroots Organizations Making Social Change, and Working Across Generations, Defining the Future of Nonprofit Leadership. Francis was a senior fellow at the Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations at Harvard for five years. In the 1990s, Francis headed the Hetrick Martin Institute for LGBT Youth and was awarded an Annie E. Casey Foundation Fellowship for this and her previous work with homeless youth and families, undocumented immigrants, crime victims, battered women, and substance users. She writes and presents frequently on issues related to nonprofits, leadership, and social change. Francis, I am really grateful for the body of your work, and I am so grateful that you built on this leadership in the 1990s with LGBT teens, LGBT teens and um, took those lessons and really saw something more, saw a gap that you and your colleagues were uniquely suited to fill. So um, thank you and welcome. Oh, I'm really happy to be here. So thanks for having me. Um, uh, my pleasure, really. Um, so it's very clear to me that this whole business of change agent is kind of a part of your DNA. You have um, held a variety of leadership roles in organizations. And I, I just actually, I'm just sort of curious, um, has it always been part of your DNA? So what, if I, if I chatted with like 
I don't know, an aunt at your uh, Thanksgiving table when you were like 10 or 11? Would they, would they say, oh, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing Francis would wind up doing? Well, it depends on my aunt, but if you talk to my 104-year-old aunt who was um, a social worker and did social change herself, probably she would say yes. Um, You know, I think that uh, my work at Hetrick Martin, uh, where I work with LGBTQ teenagers, really came after working with homeless and runaway youth. Right and uh, working generally in the nonprofit sector. And I think each job made me think more and more about how we do our work and how we really can affect change. Um, uh, I've been a service provider. I've uh, done policy and advocacy work. And now really it's to strengthen nonprofits to support social movements for change. All in the service is the same thing. Um, do you, um, I'm, I'm curious whether you, so you've led organizations and are now supporting and strengthening organizations and movements. Um, does, do you like one more than the other? Yeah. You know, when you run an organization, that's the hardest thing you can do. Yep. Um, I really think it's, it's so much, especially if you're running some sort of service organization. I mean, I run an organization now, but it's in support of Indeed. other people. So, um, I would say those are the hardest jobs I've had. And um, and if you want to have uh, take those lessons and have a broader impact, it's really good to be able to package that, think about that, and use that experience to help others. Um, but also it's a constant learning. I'm also learning from others. You know, it's not like I have that knowledge within me. I think we learn from each other. And I think that, that we often miss that. It's not like there's somebody's the expert and somebody's the newbie. We are also constantly learning. So it expands me to be in this role. Yeah, I think, and don't, don't you think that the people that are drawn to this kind of work are those kinds of people? I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So um, so tell me about um, how... Uh, your trajectory. So did you leave Hetrick Martin and then start the Building Movement Project? Did I miss a step in between? I was just curious. Um, So in um, the late 90s, I had a fellowship for the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Uh, And so that kind of took me out of Hetrick Martin. I I actually thought I might go back. And uh, it was a nine-month fellowship, and I did several things, um, and including um, a three-month uh, kind of stint at the Hauser Center for Nonprofit Organizations at Harvard, which was just starting then. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I was there and I came back to New York and I was consulting, uh, figuring out after the fellowship what I wanted to do when they called and said, why don't you come back uh, and work with us for a couple of years? And so at first I was like, why would I want to be at that elitist institution? And then somebody <laughs> sat me down and said, Francis, Harvard University is asking you to come. Uh, you can kind of make up your own job uh, and tell me why you're saying no. So that, you know, somebody, sometimes it's somebody has to knock some sense into you. And that's what happened with me. Indeed. That's very good. So what was, so the, what's the origin story of the building movement project? So what, or what, so was, what I'm curious about sort of what gap it was perceived to be filling. Yeah. So I go to the Hauser Center and because it's Harvard, they're working with very large nonprofits, the Nature Conservancy, the American Red Cross. So I was interested in what they were doing and how we supported those groups work more effectively. Uh, But they weren't the groups that I had the most familiarity with. Mm -hmm. So I, one thing that's really easy to do at Harvard is to raise money. Everybody wants to give to Harvard. Uh, And so I raised some money to bring together 20 people from across the country 
that works in social change organizations. And I mean really different types of organizations, like a parent-run, parent-led daycare center, which was actually quite large in Chicago, uh, the Rivers Network, the Center for Third World Organizing. Um, so we came together over a three-day period to talk about if you were doing social change work, if you were nonprofit doing social change work, whether you were a service provider or an advocacy group, or an organizing group, what sort of support do you need that mm. might not be the same sort of support that a large mainstream organization needed? And that's really the birth of, of the Building Movement Project. It actually was originally called Building Movement into the Nonprofit Sector Project. And then somebody said, lose the, you know, too long. So we just shortened it. Um, and um, it is really one of the things that I have grown to really understand is um, how much support all different kinds of nonprofits need, how um, I have ranted about this, about how uh, professional development and this notion of learning from each other is seen as some kind of a luxury rather than a necessity. And, mm. um, uh, and, in fact, I just did a piece for the Chronicle of Philanthropy on just called Who Needs a Coach? Um, that was a sort of an implicit kind of rant about, you know, the notion that, well, well Roger Federer, when he goes on to the tennis court, is always going to have a coach. But if you're running a teen suicide hotline, you got to work like hell to get a budget a line approved to have mm. any kind of PD support at all. So it's a, it's a, it's very interesting. And I think your organization fills that kind of gap in such a big way. Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, people have different points of view about this. Um, when you talk about a movement, what do you mean when you say a move, building a movement? What do you mean by that movement? Well, it's interesting because you said in the beginning of this uh, that it's about collective power toward, to create change um, uh, when you think of uh, movement building. I was wondering um, if you actually agreed with me. And, um, you know, and I think that if you talk about nonprofit organizations, I would say nonprofits don't create movements. They support movements. But, you know, just like you need an organizational capacity to keep you strong as an organization so you can survive as an organization and you have to build all this muscle. What's your financial uh, plan? You know, what's your fundraising plan? How do you do your HR work? You know, how do you make sure you're attaining your outcomes? There's a muscle for uh, if you want to support movements, and that's a different muscle than your organizational strengthening muscle. And that's how do you work across your organizational boundaries? How do you listen to your constituencies and uh, what they're saying um, to make sure that you're representing what they need for change. Um, how are you working across generations? How are you working across race? What's your equity work? Uh, this, these are all things that are important in movement building. That's a, and, and those muscles are a little different than the muscles. And they shouldn't be in contrast, but they're different than the muscles that you need to build a strong organization. So that's what we really focus on. What, what are those things that you need to be able to do? What are your capacities? that you need uh, enable to, uh, to do movement building. And so when you think about that, so I, actually probably a good question that, that others may ask is, do you work directly with particular movements or do you provide resources across movements? So just how you operate. Well, so two things I'll say. One is we're not a consulting firm. We don't work with individual organizations. Um, we refer to you and to others that do that work. Um, and we, 
Um, we're not we're we're not movement agnostic because we really work with progressive movements for yep. social change. So uh, uh, so I want to be really clear about that. But there's not any one movement that we might be working with people in a, a certain movement for a while. I think what how we see our work is um, listening to people, whether it's through surveys or interviews or case studies, taking what we hear, turning it into usable tools, things that people can. Um, that running organizations or that working in organizations can use in their day-to-day work and life, and then um, and then doing trainings on those. Mm-hmm. So uh, and keynotes and you know do a lot of talking about what we do. But it's it's a it's a cycle because uh, the more you listen to people, the more you know and 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 kind of can reframe. Um, what you're hearing across lots of other people. I mean, one of the things I felt when I ran an organization is I knew my organization, mm-hmm. but I didn't always, it was really hard to get the big picture. I, you know, I could talk to L- other LGBT executive directors, but sometimes they weren't the most relevant people. I might need to know more about youth. I was running a youth organization. Absolutely. Uh, what was happening in the youth field. So, so one of the things we try to do in terms of movement building is what are we hearing? What are we learning? And how can we get that information out to people in usable forms? Um, so that they can incorporate that into their work as well. Fantastic. Uh, so let's talk. Let's get specific here and um, talk a little bit about what feels like perhaps the most well-known study that you did. In two, it was in 2016, and it was called called Race to Lead. You had about 4,300 respondents, and they answered questions about their current nonprofit job, interest in leading a nonprofit, training support, views on race in the nonprofit sector. Um, give my listeners a little little appetizer, sort of of the some of the key takeaways from that and as a and as a tee up to the fact that you're actually redoing the the study this year yeah well first maybe i'll put it in context of our work that might help people why how did we even get there why did we do a race to lead great survey and actually it it occurs to me that we have a website buildingmovement.org www.buildingmovement.org very easy all the materials are there we have two satellite sites you can get to those so i just in case people want to know more or to download some of the resources. So we have worked traditionally in three areas. One is what we call movement building, which is how do you work across issue areas and across organizational boundaries to make larger change? We also have a big body of work, and happy to talk about this later, on what we call service and social change, which is how do service organizations really listen to their constituent, um, uh, provide avenues for their constituents to have more voice and power to to actually address some of the root causes of the issues that they face every day. And then the last area was leadership. And actually it came out of that very first meeting that I just described when I was at Harvard. So I brought, we brought together all these people, we're having a meeting and all of a sudden um, the younger people at the meeting, and this was a long time ago, this was uh, <laughs> 20 years ago, the younger people at the meeting said, you know, uh, you know, like what's happening here? And that happened after one of the older leaders said, you know, I don't know, you know, I'm going to retire someday. Who's going to take my place? And right. I always say the older leaders were saying, uh, the younger leaders, were, uh, the older leaders were saying, you know, the boomers are going to leave. We're going to have a crisis. What are we going to do? And the younger leaders were like, the boomers are never going to leave. We're going to have a crisis <laughs> because we're, they're going to stay forever. So there was two, these two very different perspectives. And we were like, wow, that's really interesting. So we, our first studies were really on generational shifts in leadership. And we mentioned that we did a book. We did lots of studies on that. We did a lot of work later on with uh, long-term leaders and the leadership and leaving and how that's a leadership function that nobody's ever taught. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, we were doing that work, and we actually were thinking about sunsetting that work when, when our uh, kind of board looked at us and said, you know, we're seeing um, uh, our world, we're all people of color. At that time, my mom was saying, you know, we're seeing more white uh, leaders in our field and, and fewer leaders of color. Mm-hmm. And Sean, my co-director, and I kind of scratched our heads and thought, that's funny because for uh, at least 20 years, there's been all these programs training emerging leaders of color, talking about how we know, need more people of color in leadership. You know, let's dig into this a little bit. And what we found is that, you know, the composition of leaders hadn't really changed over the last 20 years. That uh, it depends on what studies you read, but less than 20% of the nonprofit sector has leaders of uh, organizations have leaders of color. So our question was why, despite the fact that we keep training people to be leaders, mm-hmm. uh, uh, people of color to be leaders, why are there so few leaders of color? So the, the survey was really to answer that question. Actually, we dug into the li- literature, we interviewed over a dozen people, um, and then we came up with the idea, like, we have to do a survey. Like, we just right. don't know. Nobody seems to know the answer. And what we found really is the narrative, the narrative of what we thought was a problem was wrong. So what the narrative was is that we need to train, support, uh, people of color to be leaders because either they don't have the training that they need, they don't have the education that they need, um, uh, they they don't know how to network. Uh, so we're going to train people to be leaders. Mm. But what we found from the survey is that that's the wrong narrative. The the people of color compared to white respondents had the same number of years in the sector, the same amount of training, the same educational attainment, and actually leaders, uh, uh, people of color in the in the survey were 10% more likely to say they wanted to lead a nonprofit than white respondents. So, so the issue turned out to be not the, actually the aspiration or the training or education. It was really the racialized barriers that people of color face when they try to advance in their career. Right. So, um, so rather than looking at, um, it's kind of like, trying to train and train and train people of color, if they're hitting, uh, a, as one person said to us, a brick wall, then it doesn't, doesn't make matter. any difference. Right. And, doesn't and matter. what we need to address is why is there a brick wall? That's abs- the, totally right. There's a, um, uh, a woman at, you might even know of her, at Columbia Law School, who's doing a very similar kind of issue about a higher education and that, uh, you know, with more and more students of color entering academic higher institutions of higher ed, that you can bring more students in, but if you aren't actually tackling, you know, in this case, the, the brick wall at a college or a university, it is those, those students are not going to be set up to succeed. And people weren't even getting the job, so they couldn't succeed because you you don't even get the job because uh, and what what was reported is that that um, whiteboards uh, don't support leaders of color, that um, executive recruiters don't recruit um, uh, people of color, uh, that um, um, that there was kind of like people were uh, people of color were weeded out because they kind of didn't fit the culture of the organization, which is right. kind of a, a substitute Code. for implicit bias. So all these, all these barriers that, you know, were kind of the norm um, were what people of color were up against when they tried to advance into leadership positions. Lots of, you know, lots of different kinds of organizations do studies and surveys and, um, and they keep their fingers crossed that, you know, that they have an impact. How, how do you, when, when you think about this particular study and you'd have others as well, which I actually want to talk about um, a little bit later on, um, how, do, how do you know it hits the mark? How do you know that it matters, that it had an impact? 
Well, in this case, we knew because of the tremendous response to the study. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, people said, oh, well, you were, it's because you were in the Chronicle of Philanthropy or you were here or there. We've had other articles in those places. I think it was, you know, and a lot of it, it's just the right moment that mm-hmm. something hits. Yep. Uh, if you're too early, people don't pay attention because they're not there yet. And um, if you're at the tail end, people don't care as much. But but uh, it was it was just at the point that people were starting to think about this as an issue. And um, and I, I think Sean and I were as surprised as anybody. I mean, the 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 findings came out in the summer of 2017, and then we just hit the road. Um, and an interesting thing happened, Joan, after we hit the road. Sean and I were traveling and traveling and, um, you know, June, July, August, and kind of towards the end of August, we sat down together and to kind of compare notes. Like, yep. what are you hearing when you're in the field and, and when you do a keynote uh, or a presentation? And, and, um, and Sean said, gee, it's funny, you know, what I get uh, is um, a white guy in the first row <laughs> kind of challenging me on the data. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, like the, the, the first thing you hear, well, you know, how do you know that there's something about the data? Okay. It's the largest data set. And actually anybody has a nonprofit staffer. So like, why would you start challenging the data? But that's where they go. So that's kind of the defense mechanism. Sean is a young man of color or younger man of color, not young. Um, uh, that's the reaction. The reaction I was getting was from people of color saying, um, wait a second, why do we need data? To, to to bring attention to something that we've been saying for the last 30 huh. years and how um, how um, how could you um, not acknowledge that people of color have been saying this um, all this time and which is a completely right um, that's how we knew to do the study that there was a problem so I think what we did is we actually put a slide in our presentation and it's a split side saying of reactions and one says um, you know, are you sure? Are you sure the data's right? And the other side is, duh, what did you expect? Because <laughs> I think it, it, it really um, revealed um, how people reacted differently to the data, but people were engaging and we could hear that all over the place. Just uh, so you know, we put out not only the first race to lead report, but we have an LGBT report. We have a woman of color report. We have a yep. CEO report. Um, and when we did a webinar after the Women of Color report um, came out, like within a few days, a thousand people had signed up. I just think people are hungry for yes. this information and there was no place to get it. I, uh, actually, that was the word that was coming to my mind is that you tapped into a hunger that was out there for somebody to say, you know, this is what we're actually learning when we talk to lots and lots of people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And um so we're actually talking with Frances Conroyder, and she is the uh, co-director of the Building Movement Project, which works to strengthen U.S. nonprofits as sites of civic engagement and social change. She's an author. She was a fellow at the Hauser Center for Nonprofits at Harvard and uh, ran an organization in New York for LGBT youth and um, writes and presents frequently on issues related to nonprofits, leadership, and social change. We've just been talking about uh, the Race to Lead study that uh, her organization did in 2016. Uh, probably worth before we move on to a different topic that you've got um, uh, uh, have a survey out in the field for um, uh, uh, an updated version of this study. Yeah, yep. and, and, and how will it be and, different? And, uh, it just closed. It just closed, but we had over 5,600 respondents that completed the survey. So we're really thrilled. That's that's a lot more, and um, we hope to get. Uh, the data out by next spring, 
uh, takes a while to clean the data, analyze the data. We do a lot of focus groups after we look at the data. We'll do that. And also what will be interesting about this is, you know, after we did the survey, a lot of people asked us, will you do an organizational assessment? And we're like, well, we're not consultants. We're Mm -hmm. not going to do that. But as we thought about how do you make culture change in the nonprofit sector, um, we are now starting to beta test, a very early testing, a very brief organizational assessment that will give you some sort of race equity profile of your yeah. organization, kind of a, a diagnostic, like where are you right now and what are a few steps you can take to start changing the culture. It's not the same as having a consultant that works with you over two years, but we right. felt like people uh, really needed to know, like, how do we start? And it's a little different than other assessments because it's not like um, the HR person fills it out or the yeah. executive director fills it out. It's a survey of the people in your organization. So it's what people are feeling and experiencing. Not um, we're, we're also interested in whether you have HR policies, et cetera, yes. but it's really, you can have all the policies in the world and still have a place that doesn't feel right to people. And so, um, so look for that next summer, uh, next spring, where we hope to test it with an organization, a uh, hundred organizations this winter and, um, and get some sort of, you know, kind of narrative profile about what your, where your organization is in comparison to others. Oh, I can't think of, uh, I can't think of a better use of the time of your organization. I can't tell you how often I am asked about this kind of, you know, about this is what do we do? How do we get started? How do you start? How do you get started? So, so this is, you know, we, we don't have the best business model in the world that will be free, um, but we, we, the, the point is, is that we want lots of people to take it because I think there's a lot of interest and we don't, we want to have a very low barrier to entry. I think that's swell. Um, so you, you talked about, um, so in addition to the work that, that you're doing in this, in this arena, you also have, um, tell us a little bit about the other strategies you have uh, for m- movement building. There's a ton of resources on leadership development. And then you talked about this services and social change. Why don't you go fill people in on the services sure. and social change, and then we'll close out with the leadership development piece. That sounds great. So um, we had uh, one of our most downloaded reports, to, to be honest, is uh, uh, something we did over 10 years ago. Um, called Social Service and Social Change, a process guide. And that was um, the result of some work that our colleague Linda Campbell did in Detroit, where she was working with service organizations that really wanted to build the voice of their constituents and really wanted to do larger systemic change. Uh, and and it was a, our first attempt to say, look, we've worked with these six or seven organizations. This is what we've learned. Uh, and then over time, we kept we kept working in this area. We actually are still running cohorts of service providers that are interested in doing social change and how they can do that together and how they can support each other. Uh, but um, a few years ago, we put together a website called Tools to Engage, um, which really uh, has over 100 tools and case studies and examples and exercises, not from us, just from anybody who's worked mm-hmm. in this area, which is how, if you're interested in this, how do I, you know, anywhere from the um, client feedback loops like the Fund for Shared Insight does, but to, you know, how do my clients do advocacy? How do I, uh, you know, it, it's really everything in between. Um and so it's, we found people find it very useful. You can really, you can really find almost anything. Like if you want an exercise, if you want to talk about it at a staff meeting, if you want to know how to talk to constituents about this, it's all there. Uh, and it's still very popular. We have quarterly webinars. Um, 
that usually, you know, a couple hundred people are on um, mm-hmm. to talk about these various issues. And then you can actually view the webinars afterwards if you haven't, if, if you haven't been able to get on the call. So um, that area just seems to keep, you know, kind of, it's not that visible and yet it keeps having traction. Like I say, it keeps getting downloaded. We're always like, who are you out there that are downloading <laughs> these things? Um, but we're happy that it's being used. Um, and then movement building, um, we're just starting to get more into the uh, uh, conceptualizing the movement building work, but we're doing a lot of uh, documentation of how people work across different movements to create uh, social change. Um, I can mm. give you an example of Please. a recent one um, that we're just completing, which is about how a very progressive uh, Reproductive Equity Act was passed in Portland, Oregon, which meant that, I mean, in the state of Oregon, which meant that all these uh, people from different sorts of organizations had to work together to pass this. Why did they work together? You know, reproductive health, uh, it's called the Reprodu- Reproductive Health Equity Act. It includes uh, uh, trans uh, uh, men who can get pregnant in that act. It includes undocumented people who need pre and postnatal care. Uh, it includes everything. So how did they do that? And how do they work across all these organizational boundaries to be able to um, get the type of support um, for undocumented workers uh, to women who just need an abortion and, mm-hmm. and need access to that? So um, so our, our hope is that through these case studies and through the lessons that are learned, it's not just doing a case study. It's really what do you learn from that? We we actually have a model of how how cross um, movement cross issue areas when you do movement building um, how that works whether it's transactional or collaborative mm-hmm. or transformational and how can you tell? So that's what we're trying to do. Those lessons are so important to groups because it's not just reading the case study; it's how it applies to me. I, I as I listen to you talk about it, I just it it, it reminds me of how sort of even when I arrived to an LGBT organization in the 90s, it all, it all felt very siloed. It felt very, um, mm-hmm. you know, this, these are, <laughs> stay away from my donor or, you know, yeah. and, and, um, and, and how do you, sort of how do you grapple with a sort of, um, uh, you know, I, I hate the word competition. And what you're actually really trying to do is give people the tools to build a, a social change orchestra, right? But ha- but how do you how do you navigate? You know, how do organizations? What kind of tools do you offer to help folks navigate some of those tensions? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a hard thing. I I actually think we're turning a little bit of a corner in that way, both with funders. You know, we uh, facilitate a leadership funders group of about 30 funders who fund leadership and leadership development. And they don't want siloed things. They want to know that people are working together. They're not as interested as I think they once were that this is my organization that I fund. And um, I really think that people see that the problems that we face are so... Um, large that not one no. group can do it, and they're looking for people to work there. As a matter of fact, a funder came to us and said, "Can you document how people are working across uh, different movements and how mm-hmm. that's working?" I think that. So I do think the the tide is turning because I mean, look at this week. We are we're in Climate Week, right? right. With um, all the the walkout that's going to happen um, this week, and uh, for those of you who maybe by the time this is on the air will have happened, um, but 
But we know climate change is not something that one person can solve. This is something that we all have to be a part of, even if it's not our main thing. Yeah. How do we support other things that aren't our main thing? And how do we do it in a way that isn't, it doesn't feel like a burden. It feels like it accelerates our own work. Yep. That's absolutely right. Um, let's move to, to um, leadership for a moment. Uh, and um, there's, there's just a, just a boatload of great resources tools. Um, and you talked about this too, exercises. So it's not, we're not just looking at a, you know, a, a, an organization that is filled with studies. This is really super practical stuff. Um, Thank you. Uh, and the, um, uh, you do a lot of work with founder transition, offer a lot of resources on founder transitions, uh, long tenured staff members who have leaders who have founder characteristics. And, um, I wonder, um, how do you see, one of the things we haven't talked very much about is where the board fits in with all of this and how, as you are thinking about the work that you do, um, do you, you know, I, I find myself thinking that, you know, transitions are the, the places at which organizations are the most vulnerable because the, the baton actually gets handed from the staff yeah. leader to a board chair who may or may not be well equipped to handle it. Right. And I just yeah. wonder, I wonder as you think about building movements, where does, where is the board in all of this and what should our movement, you know, sort of the, the, the sector be thinking about as it relates to um, the, the boards of directors? I think it's really complicated, and we've really become uh, we've moved from boards kind of representing communities to boards representing money, and so it makes it yes. it's a complicated change that we've been going through, and we could talk about that later. I want to talk specifically about leadership transition, please, especially of long term leaders, because remember that when a board is hiring somebody, if a long term leader leaves, they are exercising. Uh, a job function that they have never exercised before. So most of us do our job functions every day. And so when we do them, we're kind of familiar with it. We have a chance to to try it out and fail and self-correct. But when you hire an executive director, especially if a long-term leader is leaving, probably that board has never hired an executive director of that organization before. So it had no skills on how to do that. It's never exercised that. It might be afraid of that. Uh, You might want somebody just like the exiting leader because you like that person and they should look exactly like that person and act exactly like that person. Or maybe you didn't like that person and happy they're going and then you want to hire the opposite, you know, in every way. So I think I have some sympathy for boards. Yes. Um, And I also think that long-term leaders, and I I can say this, as an executive director, you kind of want a board that's going to like behave itself. (laughs) So you you look for a board that doesn't challenge you that much, maybe a little challenge, but not that much challenge. But often what happens is the board is very dependent on the long-term leader. You're not really building the, the independence of the board, which is actually what's needed for them to do a good hire. Uh, and I, so I think that there's a responsibility actually of that long-term leader to help uh, the board really um, uh, be independent, challenging, educated around leadership transitions, uh, which make, that may make their life a little bit more difficult because maybe the last questions that they didn't ask before. 
Um, and I also think that we often have fear as executive directors having been there. I, I, you know, one of the people that we interviewed on the long-term leader said, um, he went to a training and they said, look, everybody has a dirty closet. And he said, well, what do you mean? And they said, everybody who leaves an organization, no matter what, how great a leader you are, you have the dirty closet, the things you never cleaned up. You just shoved it in that closet and said, I'll get it to it later. And they just said, look, you have that and, and a new leader will have to deal with that, but you don't not leave until you, you know, you're never going to clean up your dirty closet because a lot of people stay, I think, thinking, well, I have to take care of these things. And actually he, total funny, funny story. He said when he left, he actually wrote to the new executive director, here's what's in my dirty closet. Oh um, my gosh, that's hilarious. So I think that, that um, I really have sympathy for the board and I think it's, uh, uh, it's a hard function to do and they need help. And I think uh, I'm a big uh, fan of executive transition leadership where, you know, um, that you do it, you start planning, you know, year, a year or years in advance. I think boards need to ask executive directors when they're leaving and make plans with them instead of being afraid to ask an executive director who obviously is kind of thinking about transitioning or is coasting. Um, whether they're going to leave. It's not that the leader can say no. I mean, that's part of your annual evaluation. If Completely. you do an annual evaluation, right, that's right. um, but you know, what, how, what are you thinking about for the next few years? How do we think about this together? Uh, and I think that, that executive directors need to be less threatened by that, that that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, every, every once in a while you have a crazy person on your board, but that's hard, but, but you know, that, that they are your people that are for the organization. They're supposed to be thinking about the organization, not just about you. And I do think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very imperfect storm of the, I've never hired an executive director before. I've become very dependent on my CEO. So I haven't exercised some of my responsibilities, maybe the way that I could have or should have. And so by, and and then I'm terrified. And, right. and and people don't make, really generally terrified people don't make the best decisions. Right. And also, you know, it's like a, more work. You know, you're on a board, you go to your board meetings, you read the stuff, you do your one committee and you're done. And then suddenly you're hiring an executive. Director. I'm, in, I'm on a board right now that's going to have to hire a new executive director. And, you know, it's a lot more work. That's the truth. And yeah. that but that is part of your job. And one of the biggest risks in that regard is. Uh, hiring the best of a mediocre lot so you can be done with it. Right? Yeah. Is, is how many, Get it off your plate. How many organizations should really keep fishing and they don't? Uh, and that's, you know, that's something we see a lot of. Um, the last question, um, which is not a small one, actually, because it's so uh, well, let's think of it more as an appetizer, because, again, you've done so much work on this particular topic. But um, generational differences in the sectors. Um, I, I, you know, I do a lot of CEO coaching and uh you know, often these folks are in their late forties or older and they struggle with managing staff members in their twenties. Um, and as a result of those struggles, I, I feel like I'm seeing, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but I feel like I'm seeing more of a trend of younger staff, um, not feeling heard, not feeling a sense of agency or voice and organizing some even moving towards unionizing and, I, I wonder if that's sort of a natural, you know, sort of we should just have expected that. Is that uh, a leadership uh, flaw that the that that we're not that we're not engaging 
with folks who are younger in the right kinds of ways? I, I, it's a question I ask myself all the time because I, I don't know if it's something that, that, that was just going to happen or whether it's something that shouldn't happen that good leadership would, um, would help to, um, to avoid by making sure that younger staff members um, are managed in a way that is more appropriate to their generation. And I'll stop there. I feel like I asked you about four questions all in one. Well, first of all, you should know that when I was at Hedrick Martin, the staff unionized, so it could happen at any time. And I actually have big regrets about it because I fought the union based on the, my my board members' uh, feelings about it. And I, I and, and now I think, what was the big deal? You know, oh. like if they wanted to unionize, it makes it easier in many ways, and you know, everything was set up. So that's so interesting. I, think I, had, less I didn't I didn't know that. So I, really, I did so not know that, that. Less afraid of unionizing, but I do, and I think at the same time. Uh, taking that out of the equation, um, I think that there is a real change in what's happening. I was just on a phone call with a, a bunch of funders that are talking about different organizational structures and yeah. how do we, you know, maybe the structures that we've lived with for the, this long in the nonprofit sector are evolving and we haven't really um, evolved that. You know, we, we we tend to take our models from the for-profit sector. Actually, we, we don't really because a for-profit organization um, – I, we're more like small businesses. For profits yes. are like large corporations. You know, how many of us have more than ten or fifteen thousand staff? Very few of us, and corporations might have hundreds of thousands of staff. So, I think you know our models don't really fit. We're much more like a small business. And I, I, I went through the search of the small business literature to look at like leadership succession, and believe me, there's nothing there. Um, so, I think that that if we think of ourselves as as small businesses, it's it's really if you know, we don't really have models about how to evolve. And I think we do need to evolve. I think, hmm. um, what does it mean to have more distributed leadership? What does it mean to uh, to have different people's voices? What about new ideas coming into an organization? And actually, I, I'm, I, there's a part of me that's a little sad because I think the boomers like thought we were so inclusive. But actually, if you, uh, when I did a lot of research on generational, including a lot of, we did tons of interviews with older and younger leaders. Younger leaders do not find boomers inclusive at all. They find right. them actually uh, the opposite. And I think that that is actually right. So maybe another generation is going to get it right. Maybe we didn't get it right, which is... Um, we we actually are f- afraid of disagreement. We're uh, we don't want to hear people who have different points of view. We uh, think we know everything, and it's not at, at every generation knows something. Yes, older people know something from their experience and wisdom. Younger people are much more in touch with what's happening now. We can learn from each other, but I I don't think we're I I think our structures are constraining us. And I um it's so funny because we were just on this call, and and we're going to start looking into and digging into what are different. Uh, structures that might uh, facilitate this better for uh, uh, that are right size for our organization. I I think that would be that's a that's a great conversation to have. Is not just about you know how do I manage a different generation of staff, but is the structure of organizations right for today and who people are? Uh, that just feels it actually feels like exactly what you ought to be doing, and it it actually is very much in keeping with how you think about your work. Right? It's not about the symptom. You're actually trying to get at the root of this thing. So. Um, super impressive. Um, we're just about out of time, but I, I just want to, I, I really want to emphasize um, the, the, the breadth and depth of resources that you will find at buildingmovement.org. 
um, I, um, I, I swear I didn't know the half of it. Um, <laughs> um, and shame on me. Um, but I hope that, that if, if nothing else, if this podcast has introduced you to the Building Movement Project uh, and, and their resources, I feel like it's been a really good day at the office. And um, uh, Francis, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today and the kind of investment that, that you've made. And, um, you know, I think about this a lot is that, um, you know, you said it yourself, right? Running a nonprofit organization is about as hard a job as you can have. And it's so important for leaders to understand and to really know and hear the voices of people who are in their corners. Um, and that one of the things I so enjoy about my podcast is I actually interview so many people who are, you know, who are smart, who are advocates and champions for the success of the sector. And I, and I hope that my listeners are taking away not only the resource, but the kind of feeling that I have, which is, you know, there's, there are champions out there that are doing whatever it takes to ensure that, that you succeed. And Francis is, in, has been for a long time now, <laughs> a long time, a long time now, um, has been one of those champions. So, um, Francis, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joan, and thank you for your good work. Um, so um, that wraps us up for today. Um, and um, I got nothing else to add other than uh, know that there are a lot of people in your court. Uh, Francis Conroyder is one of them, and so too am I. So we'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, at NonprofitLeadershipLab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.